It feels good to be living eternally. I'm forgiven without a care in the world. Just catch me coasting and dipping. Catch me moving around. I love exploring this world. In and out of my town. I walk around. Hey, what's up, guys? Welcome to the Postmo podcast, where uh, once again, this week, Shani won't be with us. He's he's missing so many dates. He's like Harold Camping. <laughs> oh, oh man, oh. His pupil That's John is out this week too. He's uh, is it was he like is he like a like John Hagee or who uh, who would be compared to? Sure, John. We'll say John Hagee because their names are John and start with H. The last name is an H, so perfect. There we go, John H. So I mean, aren't we aren't we coming up on the end of the world actually? Isn't it supposed to be like some blood moon, blood moon apocalypse thing happening here soon? Yeah. Yeah, I, I can't wait. Cool. I saw the last two ends of the world. The last two blood moons were pretty cool. Yeah. Looking forward to the next couple. <laughs> it was fun seeing the world end before my eyes twice. You guys are not, I guess, old enough to remember the 1994 book that Harold Camping put out? Mm-mm. No. Yeah, so it was 1994, question mark, and that was the name of the book, and there was specific reasons why... Christ was going to return in 1994, and then he didn't. I think it was like September of 1994, and then he didn't, and so he pushed back the date a few more months, and then it, things kind of like leveled off, and he was cool for like, I don't know. 20 years. Yeah, it was like 15 years, and then all of a sudden he's like, no, I, this time, this time I'm I'm serious. The tragic thing to me about Harold Camping's ministry was that in some areas, he actually made some theological sense in some things that he actually said, but the problem was he was awful in so many other things that it kind of tainted some of his, some of his ministry and well, a lot, all of his ministry, and it kind of ruined the you know the nice classical, churchy music that they play on their, pro- on their program. Yeah, I I think one of the most tragic things, other than obviously the false prophecies, um, was that ultimately his his final verdict was essentially that the entire church worldwide is completely apostate and so you basically just have to like get out of institutionalized church and just listen to my radio program and so it was full-on cult status i think with him though i think he was a sincere person who really was concerned for the church i don't i don't feel like he was in it for the money Uh, i think he was a person who was living like a really like modest lifestyle who who was really convinced in his mind that he was right it was it wasn't like creflo dollar give me all your money type of type of situation yeah he had just deceived himself and that's what happens when and i think what we're going to be talking about a little bit today relates to those things you know the the fact when you kind of say like it's going to be me and my bible and we're it just we're gonna we're gonna hunker down and we're gonna make something of this then then that's where you kind of run off the rails yeah. So John wanted us to make sure that we always introduce ourselves. So if you guys don't know who we are still, I'm Colin Pearson. I'm Dustin Raynham. And I'm Adam Moore. Cool. How are you guys doing this week? Pretty good. Excellently. Everything is all that post mail? It really is. Today I got to meet a politician, shake his hand. I got to meet Rand Paul. I got a selfie with him and an autograph and he shook his hand. And that was pretty cool. That is pretty cool. What did you did you guys debate uh, theonomy? No, I didn't get into <laughs> too much with him. He he did politely decline to answer a question that I asked him about the Second Amendment, but um he was he was kind of busy. He was getting ready to speak, so he was in Philadelphia, right outside the Liberty Bell, 
That was pretty cool. But of course, the last time I shook a politician's hand who was running for president, that was in 2012, uh, John McCain, and we all know what happened with that. Yeah. Which I'm actually glad that that happened. You jinxed it. You jinxed him this time. Yeah. Oh, well. We'll we'll have to blame it on you. Go shake Hillary's hand. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's not... I know some of the listeners of the podcast probably aren't big Ron, uh, Ron or Rand Paul fans for various reasons, and I'm not necessarily sold on one candidate or another, but it was just kind of, he was down the, like literally down the street from where I was working. So I popped in and said, hi, that's pretty cool. Yeah. That's that post mail. We'll have to have a, an episode on voting. Cause I think it'd be maybe not just to speak specifically on candidates, but uh, just to talk about how we should vote, if we should vote, what, you know, what type of people we should only vote for or how far we can stretch that. Um, yeah. I think it'd be a good conversation to have. There's some really big debate on that topic, and that's something that I'm I'm kind of toying with a little bit. The idea of like dissenting, like not voting at all, or voting, you know, the idea of voting for lesser of two evils. If that if that's a if that's an issue for the Christian, but or the lesser uh, of three or the lesser of twelve, you know, yeah, the well, lesser of, all. <laughs> lesser of all evils. But that's not what we're here to talk about today on that post mail. What are we here to talk about? Well, we. We kind of wanted to go over the tenets of Reconstructionism, which include things like covenantal apologetics, presuppositional apologetics, uh, Calvinism, a postmillennialism, and we've we've touched on most of those tenets. But we haven't done. We've just basically taken for granted Calvinism and the doctrines of grace. So we wanted to go over that, explain our position on those things, and and kind of kind of reiterate their importance. I feel like I know when I debate people now. If they're not Calvinistic, I'm almost like checking out. It's like, I don't have time to debate this. Like, this is just settled doctrine in my mind. And so I, I kind of, I kind of like, quote unquote, got past that. Like all my Facebook friends are already Calvinistic. I'm not even dealing with Arminians anymore. But we need to, when we're dealing with the atheists or we're dealing with like new believers, I think it's something that we really need to, to, to still focus on because if we lose that, then we've lost the Reformation and, and we wouldn't be where we are today without that. Yeah, and there are a lot of people for whom Calvinism was really a turning point, you know, coming to understand the doctrines of grace, uh, shifted the foundations of their thinking, which ultimately led to further Reformation and other things in their theology. So it's definitely a good place to start on episode 11. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's kind of how I got started in all this. Uh, I just grew up in a non-denominational Baptist church, and when I got married, my wife and I decided to start looking for our own church to start going together. And we started going to Bethlehem Baptist, John Piper's church, former church, um, just because we heard the name. Uh, I read one of his books in college for class and it's just like, oh, let's, let's try that out. And, you know, we liked it and loved the, the deep theological, rich teaching on Sundays. And that just kind of started making sense and got into just basic Calvinism from that. And then from there, I didn't, I, I didn't stop reforming. So that's when I became eventually a Presbyterian and changed views and left. But that was kind of my entrance into the reformed world. So it was, uh, it definitely was a turning point for, for me and, and just understanding scripture. And, um, we'll get into a little bit of, about, you know, the importance of scripture too in a second here. But yeah, I think it's, I think this will be good to, to kind of hash out a little bit about the basics and, it's uh just get the basics out there for anyone to be able to to learn about it. John Piper is definitely a gateway drug. I mean, I would have said that he was my favorite theologian. I mean, I still love John Piper, and he's done a lot, and and his ministry is great. But I and I 
And I think one of the things that really turned me on to his ministry was his deep love of scripture, his deep love for the supremacy of Christ. And uh, as people who believe in post-millennialism, like we, I feel that he doesn't go far enough in his supremacy of Christ, that the supremacy of Christ goes far beyond it's not just the hereafter, but it also pervades history in, in a real and tangible way. I, I think that for a lot of new believers or a lot of new Calvinists, they, they go through the John Piper funnel and they get to go deeper into the doctrines of grace and, and, and transformed, you know, people like me and you from regular Baptistic kind of people into Presbyterians. Sorry, John, you're not here. Yeah, we still love you, John. We love Baptists. I was actually a Baptist probably eight eight or nine months ago, so it's been a recent transition for me. Although it was a long transition because I'm at studying covenant theology, which fascinating thing about this whole discussion is that really all of these things relate to each other. And so when we talk about you know the tenets of Reconstructionism, or it's really like we were talking about with Jeff, it's it's a comprehensive worldview issue. And so um, we'll get into this later, but covenant theology in particular actually relates to the doctrines of grace. Cool. Well, why don't we start out by talking about uh, the five solas? Yeah, so... The five solas were, they came about, um, you know, with the Protestant Reformation. It was a response to perversions of truth from uh, the Roman Catholic Church. So, real quick, they are sola scriptura, sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus, and soli deo gloria. Um, the first one, sola scriptura, Roman, Roman Catholics had, um, per, the, their perversion went on the, the foundation um, of Christian's faith and took it from being just with scripture alone, which was what the, the Protestant reformers responded with, um, to, they took it to be a combination of, um, a foundation of the scriptures, sacred tradition of the church, and then the, the teachings of the magisterium and the Pope. So they, they branched out and added all these fallible, um, humanistic, uh, reasonings and teachings and traditions that we made up on our own to give us um, a broader, a diversified portfolio for our foundation that was not strictly from God. Um, so that's what soul scripture is, scripture alone. Uh, one of the things I want to mention about this idea is we want to make sure that we don't fall into the ditch on the other side of what's called solo scriptura, which means we don't look at things outside the Bible we, or we reject anything outside the Bible as far as commentary or as far as theological insight that has come before us. And we, we rely on our own interpretation of scripture and what we think, because that's the, because we, we fall into the ditch on either side. My pastor was just talking about this on Sunday, whereas the Roman Catholic church goes into scripture plus the, the papal encyclicals, and the church traditions and and all those things as as gospel and as authoritative but what happens is we go into the other dishes and say a lot of protestants will say well i just need myself and my bible and we don't need to worry about what has gone before us and we rely on our own interpretation of what the bible says and we we don't we discount everything else that is that is 
out there. Um, and then we fall into error because most of us are not smart enough to come up with all this stuff on our, on our own. We stand on the shoulders of giants. So we don't want to fall into solo scriptura and make ourselves the final arbiter of what the Bible actually does say. Right. And, and really the, the way that the error of Rome was not that they were looking outside of scripture for assistance, but that they were looking outside of scripture for the foundation. So the foundation for us is the infallible word of God. And that's why, that's why we say sola scriptura, but we don't say that things outside of the word of God are not helpful or instructive. So, um, for example, we still look at the ecumenical creeds and the confessions of the church, and we look to those uh, points in history where the her- where the church got together and uh, made decisive um, formulations of, you know, this is what the whole church this like this is we we all agree on these points um, about how we understand scripture. We look to those things as authoritative. We we look to them and we say, okay, that's what the church decided. Um, affirm that they affirmed as truth. And so we also should look to those things and say, okay, that gives that much, much greater weight than my own personal reading because, you know, the private interpretation of me versus the ecumenical interpretation of the entire church at one point in time in history is just not going to hold up. And and so when we look at places in scripture, like I'm not going to recall the reference, but no prophecy of scripture is of private interpretation, but men of God spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So what that's telling us is not, not only is it telling us that when we look at these prophecies in scripture, it's saying not, it's, it's not just saying that the men were not just speaking on their own will, but they were speaking by the Holy Spirit. But it's also telling us that, um, men of God spoke not man of God. So we don't look at just one person's writing and say, okay, you know, that person's individual writing, that's what we're going to take as truth. We look at what all of the men who wrote scripture said in totality. And that's why it's not just sola scriptura, but tota scriptura, all of scripture and only scripture is our infallible rule of faith. But we also have to consider historical theology and look at, you know, what is the church believed? You know, if, if, if ever somebody feels like they've come up with a new doctrine, or sometimes people will say things like, you know, we're recovering the view of the early church fathers, which has been laid dormant for 2,000 years. Somebody ever says something like that, you should seriously consider that what they're saying is probably not true. Not because it's impossible that it's true, but just because it's very, very, very unlikely that the church forgot an essential truth for 2,000 years. Right. And one of the one of the ways that this particular doctrine touches things like apologetics is when we had episode seven, we had Cy Tim Brugengate on, and he was saying part of his two-move checkmate that he does is that's not what the Bible says. And so especially in this age now, Sola Scriptura seems like such an easy one to to fall back on as Protestants, but really it's it's an essential doctrine because when we're out debating the atheist or the non-believer and they want a reason why killing babies is wrong or they want a reason why um, biblical marriage is the only valid marriage we say the bible says so and that's really the foundation of, of everything we say otherwise we're just saying our own opinions on whatever subject we're talking about and sola scriptura is the foundation for the rest of the solace because 
uh, sola scriptura itself, if we if we believe that scripture alone and all of scripture is the infallible rule of all life, faith, and doctrine, then we actually have to believe that scripture is the only infallible. It's it's a circular argument in the sense that we believe the Bible is what it says it is because it says so. But as presuppositionalists, that's direct revelation from God, and therefore actually a virtuous circle. Yeah, not a vicious circle, but a virtuous circle. Number two, sola gratia. The Reformation taught us that um, we are saved by grace alone, uh, and that was a differentiation between the Catholics' perspective of um, combination of God's grace and merits through penance and good works. Um, so that was a that was a big thing that you know Luther was disgusted by is uh, what we could do to to earn God's grace. Yeah, I think that's a that's a that's a huge one. And one of the catechisms that I teach my kids is teaching them what grace is, and it's um, you know the love of God that that we've been given that we that we cannot earn and that we don't deserve, and that's definitely uh, something that you don't see in the Roman Catholic Church. And I think that was that's a very 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 big one. And the reason that it's sola gratia is that they they did not deny grace. The Church of Rome did not deny grace. They affirmed the necessity of grace. They said grace is absolutely necessary, but they denied its sufficiency. They said it is necessary, but not sufficient. They said it's grace plus, and as soon as you have grace plus anything, that's not Christianity anymore. Wait, isn't that what we've what we been accused of? What, what we've been accused of in the last... Probably. <laughs> sounds, sounds familiar. Sounds familiar. Yeah, it does sound familiar. But the reality is, we tr- we rest in sola gratia, grace alone for salvation, and we are saved unto good works. And so, after we're done with grace alone, which we're never really done with, we move on to what does God require of us? If we love Him, we will keep His commandments. Why I don't understand why that's so hard to understand for a lot of people. And we and and the Bible says that His commandments are not burdensome it's funny that uh, it's funny that people will say we confuse the law and the gospel and then they confuse the law and the gospel when we say you should do good works you should obey god's law and they say oh you're adding to the gospel and we're like wait but we're talking about the law we're not talking about the gospel <laughs> exactly and the funny thing is uh, the, the way some of these people have been programmed to evangelize or not programmed but the way that they do and and they there's a lot of people who are into street evangelism and things like that and open air preaching, and they bring the law in all the time. I mean, they're they're taught to do that, and and they do do that, and they do that rightfully. Like they they say, have you ever stolen anything? Have you ever lied? Have you ever uh, looked with lust and 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 all these things? And that is that's right and good. Yeah, because they rightfully they rightfully believe that the law leads to the gospel. Because what what do you need the cure for if you don't know that you're sick? And while everybody knows that you're sick. And everybody knows that we're dead. We intuitively know that. We suppress it. And so we need to have that brought up and exposed. And that's what the law does. But ultimately, when we look at grace, you cannot add anything to the grace of God. If you if you say that, you know, God gives us grace and then we contribute just a tiny, tiny little bit, that's very, very problematic because then what the, what it's not, it's maligning the character of God to suggest that his grace is insufficient, that the blood of Jesus is not sufficient to actually save people. That's very problematic. Cool. Next one, sola fide. 
Um, this is probably the biggest one that most people think of when they think of issues with the Roman Catholic Church, but saying that we're justified by faith and works that we produce, um, kind of like what we just mentioned. Um, they combine the works with the faith to get to get the salvation or to be justified versus so fide, meaning we are justified by faith alone. The biggest difficulty in understanding this for people who are, you know, freshly familiar with discussing with Romanists on the issue is uh, that Paul and James use the term justification differently. So while Paul says, so then we're justified by faith apart from works of the law, James says, so then we're not justified by faith alone, but also by works. And so the question is, how can they both be true? And the solution is simple. Paul is speaking definitively about justification, the actual process of how we are declared righteous, whereas James is speaking about the external manifestation of justification. So not justification by God, but justification in the sight of men. Right. We know we, it's basically the word verif, almost like verification or exactly. sh showing. We are verifying that we are indeed our believers because we do what God has commanded and required of us. Right. And, and the easiest way to come to that conclusion exegetically is actually to understand the genre of the book of James is actually very different from the rest of the New Testament. So whereas we have the Gospels and Acts, which are like historical narrative, and then we have the um, writings of Paul, the epistles, um, even you could include Revelation in the epistles, though the genre is very different. But the epistle of James, although it is an epistle, is actually not written like the other epistles. It's written in the fashion of first century Jewish wisdom literature. So if we think of like the book of Proverbs, the Song of Solomon, the Psalms, the, all those different writings, it's written in a different format. And so the format of first century wisdom literature was to put forward truths in a very black and white fashion. So when he says that we're justified uh, not by faith alone, but we're also justified by works, when he says that, he's painting a very black and white picture to say, if you look at somebody and they say they have faith and the way that they live their life doesn't match up, they're not justified at all. So they're saying that they have faith, but they don't actually have faith. So he's dealing with the practical the outward aspect, and if you, uh, Calvin's commentary on it is actually very helpful. Yeah, and one of the one of the famous lines is, "We're justified by faith alone, but never by a faith that is alone." And one of the one of the people that really helped me on this, which I wouldn't agree with all of his theology, but that's Dietrich Bonhoeffer and the cost of discipleship. And he's, if I look back into a moment in time that kind of set me off on the journey toward a love of God's law, theonomic view of of ethics of someone who took seriously the idea that we need to be closely following what God wants us to do. It was his book and it was his, his ideas about cheap grace versus costly grace. And the idea that we are not, if we are saying that we love God and we're not doing what he says, we, we really are liars and we haven't really truly understood what grace is all about. Here's from Calvin's commentary on James two verses 20 to 26. Uh, but wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac, his son, upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. 
ye see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith alone. Now I'm going to go down to his actual commentary on this. So I'm looking at the commentary starting in verse 23. And the scripture was fulfilled. They who seek to prove from this passage of James that the works of Abraham were imputed for righteousness must necessarily confess that scripture is perverted by him. For however they may turn and twist, they can never make the effect to be its own cause. The passage is quoted from Moses, Genesis 15:6, that the imputation of righteousness which Moses mentions preceded more than 30 years of the work by which they would have Abraham to have been justified. Since faith was imputed to Abraham 15 years before the birth of Isaac, this could not surely have been done through the work of sacrificing him. I consider that all those are bound fast by an indissoluble knot who imagine that righteousness was imputed to Abraham before God because he sacrificed his son Isaac, who was not yet born when the Holy Spirit declared that Abraham was justified. It hence necessarily follows that something posterior is pointed out here. Why then does James say that it was fulfilled? Even because he intended to show what sort of faith that was which justified Abraham, that is, that it was not idle or evanescent, but rendered him obedient to God, as also we find in Hebrews 11.8. The conclusion, which is immediately added, as it depends on this, has no other meaning. Man is not justified by faith alone, that is, by a bare, empty knowledge of God. He is justified by works, that is, his righteousness is known and proved by its fruits. So as you can see, he's very clearly saying that this is not speaking of objective justification in the sight of God, but in the sight of man. So like you said, it's a faith that's not alone, because a true faith is a faith that ultimately produces works. Not that faith is, un is n by itself not sufficient, but that a true faith will ultimately result in works. And this is an area in which we need to show grace to people because there are times in my life, if you were to look at a little chunk of my life and say, is this person a believer? You could make a good case that I was not. Um, but we have to look at a longer view of the journey of sanctification that we're going on. And the Bible says, if these things are found in you and are increasing... And so we look at our lives not just like, well, we disobeyed God's commands and therefore we're out, but we have faith in a faith that kind of continues on in spite of sin and leads to repentance and is a, is a heart attitude that tries to uh, continue to follow God. I think that's, uh, that's what we're talking about here, not, some, not a perfection or not something that where we we ex, where we expect to see instantaneous victory over all sin at all times. Something else that I've encountered um, that some people have difficulty understanding is how can it be grace alone and faith alone? Wouldn't it have to be one or the other? And the truth of the matter is that faith is given to us by God's grace. So when God grants us the grace to save us, that includes the faith. So grace is the cause. It's by grace, and faith is the means. It's through faith, by grace alone, through faith alone. Number four is solus Christus, or Christ alone. Uh, so we say that we are saved by Christ alone, versus um, the Roman Catholics at the time um, of the Reformation, 
said that we were saved by the merits of Christ and the saints. And we can approach God through Christ and through the saints and through Mary, who all pray and they intercede for us. Um, so this is probably next to justification by faith, but the, one of the biggest ones that most people go to, maybe, you know, in lighthearted banter when they talk about Roman Catholicism, about, oh yeah, they, they worship Mary. That, that's probably one of the big ones that people go to first. And I've actually heard, I think it was uh, Dr. White mentioned that that's the one thing that you should not start with if you're trying to have a meaningful conversation with someone is not go straight to Mary. Um, because they don't believe that we are there saved just by Mary, and they don't worship Mary um, as God. But uh, this is probably one of the ones that stand out pretty uh, predominantly to those who oppose Catholicism. And this, when we're when I jump into discussions with people, if I want to start a conversation about the doctrines of grace, this is the sola that I start with. And I actually picked this up from Sai. I saw him and heard him having conversations about this in this way. And it just really uh, broke down the conversation to just the bare bones fundamental issue, which was if you ask somebody, do you believe salvation is in Christ alone? If they're a Christian, they're going to say yes, right? Everybody's going to say yes. If they say no to that, like, I, like, we have to have a different conversation before we can talk about the doctrines of grace. Like, you don't understand the gospel. But then after that, you, so you say, is salvation in Christ alone? If they're a Christian, they're going to say yes. And then you say, okay, so what's the difference between you and Joe the reprobate who burns in hell for eternity? Is it what Christ did or is it what you did? Here's where it gets tricky because they're typically going to say one or the other or both. Like I've, I've heard some people say, well, well, it's because you didn't, it's because you didn't accept Jesus. And it's like, okay, so then... It's not so salvation's not Christ alone because actually both me and my neighbor who's in who's going to hell actually we both got Christ. That doesn't make the difference between us. Then what makes the difference is what I did. But if it's true that the difference between us is Christ, if it's if salvation is only of Christ, if it's Christ alone, then Jesus didn't die for both of us. Because if he, if Jesus did the same for me and my neighbor, if he did the same for us both then the difference is not Christ. And so then salvation is not actually Christ alone. But I've actually heard people try to say both, and then it's you've actually got both problems. If, if it's both what I do and what Christ does, then salvation is not Christ alone still. And then you have Jesus you know, doing, doing the same for me and, and Bob the reprobate or Joe the reprobate. You can give him whatever name you want. And that not actually doing anything for either of us. Then you don't do a limited atonement conversation of... Did Jesus fail at what he was trying to do? Also, though, we have to, m most people that you're going to meet on the street, when you ask, what is, how, how is somebody going to get to heaven? They're going to say, well, I'm going to do good work. You know, I can, I can be a good enough person and I can get to heaven. So really their hope is not even in Christ really at all so much as it's in themselves. And so they, they haven't even got the Christ plus works or Christ plus themselves. They've got Christ versus pure Pelagianism. Yeah, pure just Pelagianism, me. just me. Yeah, so. pulling myself up by my moral bootstraps. Which, which is why the semi-Pelagian has the "there's some good in me," and so I rely on Christ a little bit. I rely on myself a little. Yeah, the synergism and uh, heresies both. All right, last one. Soli Deo Gloria to God alone be the glory. So this this wow, I just said soul and I heard myself saying <laughs> Minnesotan soul. Every once in a while, I catch myself. <laughs> Dang it. 
You're you're being sanctified to this podcast. <laughs> you know, growing up, we were told that most most man <laughs> can't get away from it. A lot of uh, news programs send their their TV anchors to the Midwest to learn how to speak because it's a more I don't know, easy to understand and uh, I don't know if it's universal, but just for some reason they send their their a lot of their news anchors to the Midwest just to pick up. Maybe not specifically the accent, but parts of parts of the language and speech because it, uh, I think, is more that it's easily understand in, in a lot of different cultures, like the Southern folk, who are sometimes hard to hard to understand. Anyways, sidetrack. So, to who should the glory be? To who should the glory be pointed to for the salvation to God alone? Versus Catholic, the Roman Catholics would say um, they it's called they call it the theology of glory. Or it's been it's been penned that's where um, they're giving credit partly to Christ, but they're also giving it to Mary and to the saints and even to the sinner. That kind of ties into what we just talked about. Yeah, and ultimately, if you f- if you have foundationally the first four solas, the fifth one just lo- follows logically. You can't, but like if if Scripture alone is our infallible rule, which only comes by the inspiration of God, and then it's you know only grace only faith only christ we have nothing to boast in the glory is automatically god's alone but for some people the other ones may be more or less difficult to understand wrap their mind around but to the glory of god alone that makes sense to most people we get we just intuitively get well obviously if god is the sovereign you know if he's in if he's the you know creator of the universe then he of course gets all of the glory but then that comes down to the you know the question of the of the next segment is uh well, if God alone gets the glory, then what does that mean about what does that mean about how salvation really works? Yeah, that's a good point. And one of the things that that irks me a little bit about it's hard. It's you can't judge other people's hearts, but I see the Solo Deo Gloria thing posted all over the internet, and people put it kind of all over things. And I know I know Bach had it at the end of all of his compositions, but it's almost as if people are putting it out there like a kind of like you know. SDG at the end of everything. <laughs> yeah, like God bless you. We're like, we need to, um, you know, as somebody like I hold the Westminster standards, as people who are confessional and we we high, have a high view of God and His and His holiness. Like if you if you start putting solo day glory on everything and it doesn't really mean anything anymore because it's just like a little tagline you put on, like then that's that's actually taking the name of the Lord in vain. Like it's it, you're not actually saying that, and it's almost it's almost as if you throw it as like a throwaway line on, on your t-shirt or whatever. And, uh, not to, not to say that people can't use it and be sincere about it, but I'm just cautioning people who may be hearing this and probably a, a good number of people who are, who will hear this podcast, use it on a regular basis. Just, just be aware of that and, uh, and continue to use it in good faith. And I won't, I, I try be not intentional. be intentional and I, I won't judge you and, but, and, and we should be, we shouldn't be looking at other people's hearts, but just, uh, just something that has been on my mind for for a little bit of time. Bach had a very particular reason why he actually did that, um, because he was a uh, when he did that he didn't always write SDG at the bottom of uh, of every page. He did that when he was at working in Leipzig and he worked as a music minister for twenty seven years. So he composed um, all of the music for. Um, for church services, literally every Sunday he composed something different for 27 years, five plus hours of music, in addition to writing other stuff. So he was just very, very busy at work writing music constantly. 
And because he was so busy and because he was so prolific and putting out so much stuff, he was he was a you know really solid Lutheran guy. So he just really wanted to make sure that both other people understood and probably for himself as well. He just wanted to make sure that he wasn't glorying in the work that he was doing, but he was giving God the glory because that's, he, he didn't see it as like, you know, like, oh, this is my life work. He saw this as, this is my service to the kingdom. This is, you know, this is what God, God's calling on my life. This is what I need to do for, for him. It's not for me. And so, you know, people talk about Bach and we're like, oh, Bach is amazing. But if it weren't for other historical records, we would look at his music and go, who in the world wrote this? Because he didn't write his name on it. He didn't want people to think of Bach. He wanted to think of, he wanted people to think of the words that were written, which were primarily scripture. You know, he would set scripture to music frequently. And so I think, I think there's, I think there's some, you know, we can take from that and, and kind of look at our own lives and say, you know, like, is the way that I'm, you know, treating my boss at work is that am i really doing that to the glory of god like because if if i would say that like haphazardly and just be like oh yeah sdg because that's how you're saying you know you see people saying that like we should think about like am i really doing this is is that the intention of my heart i know that it should be but is that the intention of my heart to live every aspect of my life sacred or secular all of the different things for god and his glory alone so Five hours of music every week. Five plus. Five plus. So I, I get upset. I get upset when I got to pick out five songs each week for church. <laughs> <laughs> I just got to pick them out and I even got to write them. Yeah. And that was all fresh composition every week. That's just the way that they did things back then. Like that was your job as the music music minister was to make sure there was fresh music every week for people to sing. So Now imagine, Adam, if you went to a hipster Presbyterian church where not only did you have to pick out five songs, but you had to rearrange them in a hip new way. Uh, yeah, that's, all, that's, <laughs> that's pretty much the same thing. Reinventing the wheel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm sure we have some uh, exclusive Psalm and people listening to this podcast. So yeah, I lean that direction. So well, uh, yeah, I know there's a lot of Covenanter people out there that that go that way, and uh, it sure would make my job a lot easier on Sunday. The difficulty would be like learning to do things like chant. If you have some of the things in chant, it does take a little bit of practice to to get the get the hang of singing chant because it's unmetered, but um. But it's, I mean, it's one of those things where as a music major, I studied those things and I didn't really think about the significance of it at the time. But, you know, in retrospect, it's like, wait, wait a second. So the church for like a thousand years did music basically the same way. Like there were variations in the way that they wrote the melodies and stuff like that. But in general, they did things the same for a very, very long time. And listening to that, like listening to recordings of it is kind of trippy because it's, you know, it's in Latin and stuff and I can't, you know. I don't understand Latin intuitively. I have to kind of go look stuff up and it's just cool. It's a it's a historical. I'm a music nerd, so, you know. I almost failed uh didn't finish college on time because I almost failed a uh a music major only class that I What class? Took as an elective. Uh early western music. It was like basically Oh, uh, it's like music history 1. Yeah, up through basically up through the Renaissance and uh I don't know how I got like a C plus in it. And if I would have gotten below a C, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have graduated. That's like my favorite time period to study too. Shame I know. On you. <laughs> I, I, I have the books. Well, I, I thought I did. I got the best grade on the first test, but for some reason, I, I don't think the professor liked me. Colin, you're one of the few people who go to school to study music, take the music classes and actually go through with it and graduate. I think when I was in, I went to a, I didn't graduate actually. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, okay. No, I didn't. Well, I, I just, my experience was uh, I went to a, a Christian college for a year and I went there with the intention of doing like a, a, I think it was like a 
a major in uh, some type of biblical studies or that Christian ministry and then a minor in music because I wanted to do music ministry. And yeah, after, you can't like, do minor in music. <laughs> well, after half a semester doing music, like I, I kind of liked music theory, but once I got past the basic stuff and getting into all the other things, I'm like, you know, past sight singing and ear training one, I'm like, okay, I'm done. So I think the next semester, like three-fourths of the people switch their majors. Dustin, what do you play? <laughs> Uh, a little bit of everything. Guitar is my main instrument, but I like I like drums and I, I can't read sheet music, but I like to dabble on the on the keys a little bit and uh, I, anything I can pick up, I like to jam with. I, when I was going to college, I, I was going to be a music major, but then I wanted to pay the bills. So yeah, exactly. See, at the time when I started college, um, there was actually a significant number of music teaching positions opening up in various places, and as I progressed through college the situation in the economy got worse and so and the housing market crashed and the and uh property taxes where they get funding for schools and so music teachers started getting laid off like nobody's business so by the time i was a senior i was like i'm just going to power through this and finish and then they start and then the, the economy started affecting the state schools and so they were like yeah that last class that you need to graduate only 20 people can take it because that's just the limit we put on it and you didn't make the cut. And I'm like, I'm graduating. They're like, yeah, you and 30 other people. Best luck, like good luck next semester. And I'm like, uh, no, I'm not, I'm not paying another semester's tuition to take one class. Sorry. So I just, that's why I didn't graduate. Wow. Yeah. I got, I got stiffed by the man. It was not cool. Yeah. I have a lot of college debt. So thankfully I got out with not too much. I mean, I, I still do have some, but it wasn't like, you know, some people spend like a hundred grand and don't finish. I was like, Oh, oof, I couldn't do that. But Wow, we got off a sidetrack there. So that's cool. Soli Deo Gloria. That's what we were so, talking about. SDG. So that's uh, that's definitely the application part for me. It's just like you know, we we have to think about things as for the glory of God alone. So anyway, we will uh, we will be right back with uh, the doctrines of grace. Welcome back to Dat Post Mill Podcast. We're going to jump into another segment now. We're going to talk a little bit about the doctrines of grace, also known as the five points of Calvinism, which, in case you were unaware, were really the five points that were in response to the remonstrance. And so these are these were the the reformers' way to correct the errors of of Arminius. Arminius. Yeah, Jacobus Arminius was a reformer in a technical sense of that he was obviously deviating from Rome significantly, and he would have agreed probably with the five solas, but he disagreed on five particular points. He would have even said that he was disagreeing with the Calvinists, but Calvinist was a term that they used then to describe there were two, you know, two or three different kind of groups of reformers. There were the Lutherans and the Calvinists. The Lutherans um were more uh, liturgical uh, music and worship type stuff. The Calvists were more what we consider like old time Presbyterians was what that was. So, so we want to talk about the, they're often put as the five letters of the word tulip in an acrostic. Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. I particularly like the L to be particular redemption, but it doesn't fit. Two pip sounds weird. Two pip. Yeah, so... They actually, um, 
fascinating uh, little tidbit of history. The the tulip acronym was really it's really rather modern invention. It only came about sixty or seventy years ago, I think, something like that. When they originally formulated the response to the remonstrance, it was just you know we disagree with the first point on this and the second point on this, and they explained it rather than you know giving it a label. Very nice. So okay, the, well the first point, total depravity, is in my estimation the the one the linchpin that keeps everything all together. If you don't have total depravity, you're really not going to get anything else. And the I think a lot of times the major issue with the total depravity point is that people don't understand what total means. Some people think that when we're saying total depravity, we mean utterly, absolutely, or utterly depraved, which is not what we mean. But we do mean it in the sense that when somebody, when we say that we are totally depraved, that means we have the total inability to, of our own free will, choose God and to come from a state of unbelief into a state of belief and a state from a state of spiritual deadness into a state where we can become uh, alive in Christ on our own. And so that's what we mean by totally, totally depraved, even though God's grace allows people to do seemingly nice and generous things for other people. When it comes to uh, relating to God, we have no ability in ourselves to choose God. Yeah. So man, we are, we're a, a sinner because of our relationship with Adam. And that's where we, that's kind of where we point to is our relationship with God inherited from Adam. And that makes us unable to do anything good, like believe in God or to seek God or to understand the truth. Another way to, another way to explain it too, is that um, instead of like the, the misconception is absolute depravity, which would be everybody is as bad as they could be. And the fact is that God restrains evil, and so we're at we're not absolutely depraved because God doesn't allow us to be absolutely depraved. But total depravity means that the taint of sin affects every part of the human being. It affects the heart, it affects the mind, it affects the will. And that's the point of contention with the semi-Pelagians. The semi-Pelagians would say, everybody is born sinful, but that doesn't mean that they're unable. That mean they could will to choose God in and of themselves. And total depravity says no, the will itself is actually tainted by sin and therefore tainted against God. It's the same logic that says, well, out of nothing could be the Big Bang and evolution out of nothing. Well, if you give it just enough time, if you just enough time, nothing will create something. Like, even if it's like quadrillions of years, just, just all you need is just enough time. Like, no, that's not what that means. Nothing means nothing. Total means total. And there's not a little tiny, tiny seed of which your, your, your mind and heart are, are affected by the fall. The, I like the Luther's book, The Bondage of the Will, that for me, just the idea of, of someone doing what's in their nature and they're not going to do against their nature. And, and people being bound to what their their natural tendency is. I, th- I think that's the, the best way to understand. And we get things from that, like, um, you know, Romans 5, in Adam, all die. So from a spiritual standpoint, everybody's dead. Now, obviously, we're not physically dead yet, but the ultimate effect of that spiritual death is also physical death. But because we die spiritually in Adam, that means that our our will is dead, 
to the things of God. Our heart is stone, as the as the prophets say, right? So in order for God to save us, he has to bring us back to life. And I'm not sure if you've ever looked at a dead body before, but no matter how much I beg and plead with him, he's not coming back to life on his own. He needs help. You know, he needs resuscitation. Otherwise, he's not coming back to life. If you could create a serum that resurrected the dead and go into the morgue and hold it out and say, come and get it, nobody would ever come and get it. Um, another way to think about it, too, is um, when people think about, uh, you know, the ability or inability uh, concerning the will, somebody, I can't remember who used this analogy, I've heard it a couple different places, but if I had before me a bunny rabbit and a vulture, and I put on the table between the bunny rabbit and the vulture, rotten meat and fresh carrots, because of uh, the way that their digestive system works and the way that they just, the nature of, of what a bunny is and what a vulture is, they are in some sense able, you could say, in some sense. There's nothing in the created order, per se, that would prevent the vulture from choosing the meat over the carrots. But there's something within the vulture's nature itself. There's something about being a vulture that makes the vulture, the vulture would never choose anything but the meat. It's not going to choose the carrots. It's going to choose the meat. And the bunny rabbit, likewise, is never going to choose the meat because it can't digest that. But it physically would not be prohibited from walking over and eating the meat. But there's something within the nature of the rabbit itself. That's a similar concept. There's something about the nature of a dead human being, spiritually dead human being, that we are unable to do the things of God. And this is where we get, you know, Romans 8, 8, where it says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And it defines those who are in the flesh. It says in the next verse, uh, but you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. So the people who have the spirit of God dwelling in them, Christians, are able to please God because God is actually made us alive in Christ. So even though we were dead, he made us alive, Ephesians 1 and 2, right? But other than the reviving power of God in regenerating our soul, taking out the heart of stone and giving us a heart of flesh, we would never want any of the things of God. So the way that Bonson put it in his, um, he had a lecture on foreordination and human responsibility. And uh, Sean Boatman actually took a very long time to to transcribe the entire lectures into PDF, and I have a copy of it that I can I can uh, give you guys. But uh, he he did a really good job of explaining the difference when we say that somebody is free or not free. Um, it's always free with respect to what. So the human the human will is free in the sense that there's nothing in the created order that you know physically prohibits us from, for example, doing some good act. You know. What prohibits us from doing the things of God is nothing in the created order. It's not, it's not like there's, you know, this magical barrier up every time I try to do a good work that prevents me. No. It's something from within me spiritually that prevents me from doing it. Right? So with respect to the created order, I am completely free. But with respect to the ordained will of God, I am not free. So if I'm presented with an apple or an orange, I am free to choose the apple, I am free to choose the orange. But if God has ordained for me to choose the apple and not choose the orange, I'm not free with respect to God's will. 
if that makes sense. So, so it's almost like, you know, trying not trying to avoid confusing categories in the category of per- pertaining to God's will in the ultimate sense, his, um, his decreed will, because of uh, God foreordains whatsoever comes to pass with respect to that, nobody is free to contradict that, right? We're not free to thwart the will of God, but within the created order itself. And from our perspective, you know, we are free and able to do things. And so it's the, the rub that seems to be there is we're free in some sense, but not in another sense. And really the best way to look at it is that God ordains our free choices. Right. And I, th- I think one of the problems with the analogy is that people are going to say, if somebody who's maybe not taking you so seriously, they might say something like, well, you can train a rabbit to eat meat and you can train a vulture to eat carrots. You actually can't. Yeah. Um, well, because they'll die. You could get them to, uh, you could get like a dog if you had to give him meat or carrots, you know, you could get the dog to, to not do it on command for a little bit. But the, the, the point is that the nature will eventually win out in the end. Yeah. And nature wins immediately with the vulture and the rabbit because the vulture literally cannot digest the carrots and the rabbit literally cannot digest the rotted meat. So if they try to eat those, they'll die. And that's why the analogy is so powerful is because, uh, you know, nature itself physically prohibits them from doing that successfully, right, in the ultimate sense. And because that is ingrained in them, God has built it in the nature of a vulture and in the nature of a rabbit to understand that eating that kills me, I'm not going to eat that. They will not do it. And Jesus even even um, kind of touched on this idea a little bit when he talked about asking your heavenly father for gifts. It says, if you being evil know how to give your children good gifts, how much more will your father who is good give you all things? And the idea that they're evil people or people who are, uh, who are against God are capable of doing very good things. Um, perceivably. From, perceivably good things like, you know, caring for the homeless or, or feeding their children, feeding their children. Like those are good things that are after the mind and character of God. And you could even say that those deeds are good deeds in a certain way. Um, but ultimately, unless they're done um, in faith and as a part of... And for the glory uh, of and, God. And for the glory of God, you know, they're, they're filthy rags. Yeah, and the Reformers, I don't recall the, the name particularly, but somebody made the distinction that there's there's a difference between, you know, an, an active and a passive sin in that regard. So... The same act for a believer and an unbeliever is not sin for the believer, but sin for the unbeliever. For example, you feeding your children as a believer is not sin because you're doing it because that's your call as a, as a father to take care of your children. But an unbeliever who is doing that because the unbeliever is not ultimately doing that to serve and glorify God because that is contrary to the way that he's bent. It's an accidental sin is the term that he used, an accidental. So... It's not that the act itself contextually is not in and of itself sinful, but because it's not done for the glory of God, it does not please him. Right. So if you really want to wrestle Jimmy's on Facebook, just do a post about how any person who's not a Christian that feeds the poor or saves someone's life is sinning because they're not doing it to God's glory. It's a good way, it's a good way to wrestle some Jimmy's. <laughs> or just when you, when you see a news story about somebody saving a, a kid out of a burning building saying, man, what a sinful person that guy <laughs> No, and we praise God. We praise God when unbelievers do seemingly good things because that's God's, you know, that's God's common grace or His providence 
um, on the, you know, the kid who is saved by the unbelieving firefighter, you know, like that's, that's God's, you know, grace working through the unbeliever. Um, but ultimately we know that, um, you know, the more grace somebody is given in this life, um, the more they're judged for it, um, in eternity if they're not a believer. So it's just like, uh, Jesus said, if, you know, if you go from town to town and you preach the gospel and they don't accept it, shake the dust off your feet for it'll be worse on the day of judgment than for them than for Sodom and Gomorrah because Sodom and Gomorrah didn't have the gospel, but they heard the gospel and rejected it. They're more liable for the, the amount of truth that they've heard. So it's not a scary thought. Next up, unconditional election. Now this is, uh, for some people, this is actually easier to understand um, than some of the other points, but if you realize that we are totally depraved and therefore unable to choose God and unable to please him, choosing God and having faith, those are things that are pleasing to him. So we cannot do that in and of ourselves. It has to be granted to us to believe. We have to be given the gift of faith. Um, if you understand that, then you realize that in an ultimate sense, those who are elected by God for salvation are not elected for anything in and of themselves. There's nothing that any human being does or wills or says or thinks that could merit God's electing grace. So this would be in contrast to the remonstrants who are saying that God elects those who have faith. So they would say that, you know, God, by foreknowledge, by looking down the corridors of time, as some people will say, God looked forward in time and saw those who would have faith, and so he chose to save those ones who had faith. And so it becomes an impersonal choice because rather than choosing individuals, he's actually choosing actions. He's saying, okay, this action of faith, that will be, I'm choosing, I'm choosing the people who decide to have faith, but not the people themselves, right? And so uh, this would be an analogy that an Arminian friend of mine gave, which I thought was helpful, was uh, he said that, you know, like if you have a large jar full of different types of marbles, it's you you have to select if you're going to pull some marbles out of the jar there there has to be some reason that you're pulling those you're not going to like you know go blindfolded and choose them right like that's not how god chooses people he looks at the marbles and he decides which ones to pull out right and so he's actually choosing something based off of the, the way that the marbles look hmm. and my response to that is i agree except that every single one of the marbles looks exactly the same they're all black they're all completely black, perfectly spherical. And so the choice has to be not about what the marble is itself. It can't be about the marble itself. Or what it know? could be. Or what it could be or a potential in the future. There's just what the marble is naturally. They're all identical. And so there can't be anything in and of the marbles. And so God chooses to take out those black marbles and clean them. And he chooses which ones to take out and which ones not to take out. And that's what unconditional election really ultimately is. Yeah, interestingly, uh, you know, Dr. White always talks about the extra, the S in TULIP for, for God's sovereignty, but um, I think that sovereignty really fits in really well here because it it's God who's choosing, he's using his sovereignty to actively choose and elect and ordain everything that happens, and obviously, specifically here, um, election for salvation. But I feel like God's sovereignty fits in pretty well here in that he can do what he wants and we have no say in it. Yeah. And, and another helpful way to think about that aspect, the sovereignty aspect is that, um, people struggle with understanding how foreknowledge relates, right? 
and I've heard people explain, you know, well, the word foreknowledge is an active foreknowledge, so it's not like, oh, I just looked down the corridors of time, but it's more like an active choice to, to know somebody personally. That That's helpful for some people to say, you know, it's an active foreknowledge. It's just like I say, you know, like Adam knew his wife. Well, that wasn't the same type of no as, you know, that's not a passive knowledge. That's an active knowledge. It's a different use of the term no. Um and in the same way, you know, uh, God said to Jeremiah, before you were in the womb, I knew you. Well, what he means by that is not, I was aware of your existence, but rather I chose you for a specific purpose. I chose you to minister to my people, right? And that's helpful for some people. But from a philosophical standpoint, I find it helpful to relate it to the the aseity of God, which means his otherness, his complete transcendence of creation. And um, God, so we understand that God is not dependent at all on creation at all for anything that also means that he's not dependent on creation for his knowledge so that means his knowledge of what men will or will not do in the future does not come from the men themselves but from his creative power so god actually has to foreordain whatsoever comes to pass otherwise he is actually dependent on creation in order to have his knowledge he would be dependent on the free choices of man in order to know those choices themselves. And that's why, that's why, I don't know why I keep bringing up Dr. White, but that's why he says that Arminianism logically leads to open theism because it's, God doesn't know what's going to happen. Exactly. Because if God, if, because if God only knows what's going to happen based on what you choose, how does he know what you're going to choose? If he knows what you're going to choose, how are you truly free? So that's uh, you. You let's roll on to limited atonement, which a lot of people have. Uh, they say that it's the biggest stumbling block, but to me, this is one of the one of the easiest ones to get through, really, because it's just a logical conclusion of the rest of the points. Now, other people have called it instead of limited atonement because they don't like the idea of limiting God, but of particular redemption. So, the concept is that the atonement is limited to those who Christ. Uh, intended to pay for and who God elected uh, before the foundations of the world. So the idea is um, like a, a millionaire goes into a store and he wants to buy 10 gallons of milk. And so he buys 10 gallons of milk and he pays, he has a million dollars, but he only pays for the 10 gallons of milk. He doesn't pay for that, which he does not redeem or take out of the store. And so similarly, Christ's death was sufficient to cover the sins of and billions of other sins for all of humanity, but it effectually paid for the sins of those who are elect. Some people make the distinction, Distinction they'll say that the, you know, the death of Christ was sufficient for an infinite number of individuals, right? Like, you know, Jesus could have died on the cross for any number of people, right? Because he was, he was not just man and therefore able to die, he was God and therefore able to be sufficient for all of the people that he would choose to save. So the question is not whether or not the atonement is limited in power. It's whether it's limited in scope. And so uh, it's whether it was, was actually particular for a particular group of people. And here's where that comes back to that question when I ask people, um, like Sai would ask people, you know, is, is salvation in Christ alone? What it really boils down to, why that point is such a contention, is because if they concede, ultimately, that salvation is Christ alone and not me in any sense of the word, then the difference between me and Joe the reprobate is Christ. 
which means that Christ died for me and not for Joe the reprobate. So it's limited atonement, which if you believe in limited atonement, it's hard to not be a Calvinist because that's the most difficult point for people to understand for them, usually, usually. Well, they say that it is, but I think it's a little bit of cognitive dissonance. I think that people, like if people say, yeah, I believe in total depravity. I believe that God elects people. I believe that God's grace is irresistible. And I believe that once people are saved, they are, they're always saved and that God continues. And they go through all these things, but then they say, well, but God still paid for the, the sins of the people who are ultimately going to be unregenerate. And that makes no logical sense at all. Us ENTPs understand it perfectly. Exactly. Yeah. Myers-Briggs, just uh, change your personality and you'll be understanding it. This relates to covenant theology too, because I don't know if you guys remember me talking about, you know, the the covenant of redemption, the Trinitarian covenant of redemption, where, you know, Jesus is given... It, Jesus is sent by the Father, given a very specific task, and they are all taking vows. You know, like you know, the Lord says to my Lord, "Sit at my right hand until I make your enemy your, your footstool, roll in the midst of your enemies." You know, I swore, the Lord swore forever and will not change His mind that you're a priest in the order of Melchizedek. So the priestly work of Christ is part of this in a Trinitarian covenant of redemption. So a covenant between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're deciding together to be unified in the salvation of a particular people. And so that's why when Jesus said, I've come to do the will of my father, you know, I, you know, I do these things cause it's what the, what my father sent me to do. Every time it says something like that in scripture, you know, that's what it's talking about. It's talking about, you know, Christ is actually fulfilling something that his father sent him to do. He's going to perfectly succeed at what God sent him to do, which means that if Jesus tries to save everybody and fails, he did not do the will of the father. I know, and he's an utter failure. Exactly. And so that's why when people say that God really, really, really wants to save every single human being in history, they have a serious problem. Because if Jesus came to do the will of the Father, and the will of the Father is to save every single human being in history, and not every single human being in history is saved, then Jesus did not do the will of the Father, which means that he sinned. And that is gross blasphemy. But um, one of the easiest verses that I go to um, nowadays for limited atonement is 1 Samuel 3.14, which says, Therefore I swore to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Automatically, limited, limited atonement is required because Eli's house, Eli's house specifically, is never going to be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. If Jesus' death on the cross was an atoning sacrifice, if that's what it was, that cannot have paid for the sins of Eli's house. Therefore, it had to be limited in some sense. Yeah, and and we even see Jesus repeating the idea of limited atonement in kind of a way because we have the parable of the sower where we have the, the, the good soil and the stony soil and the thorny soil and the path and this idea that like there is the gospel goes out it falls on the good soil, and the good soil is the one that responds. It's not really a gardener tilling the soil to turn bad soil into good soil. Similarly, we have the idea of sheep and goats, where goats are not turned into sheep. Um, tares are not turned into wheat, but there is there are tares and there are wheat, and they have been foreordained to be that way for... And I know you're, you're, you can't really build a complete theology on that, but that further... Helps to explain um, how, in God's economy, He sees human beings, um, how He sees them to be 
part of his family, his covenantal family, or not part of his covenantal family. And uh, it's a scary thought. And then somebody might say, well, well, how can God be mad at somebody who hasn't elected? How can God, how can, how can this be just? How can, how can we serve a God who, who's arbitrary and capricious and only picks the people he, he likes? And what we say to that is, as, as Christians is that the call goes out to everybody. It's a command. That's that's the best way that I like to put it. Is it's not it's not an offer in in the sense of like you know like well here it is you can choose or not choose. It's a command. God commands people everywhere to repent, and so even though they're unable to do so, that doesn't make that doesn't even even if you are unable to please God, that doesn't mean you're not responsible to please God. You still have to. It's still required by God's perfect holiness and His law, His justice that you be punished for your sin. Right, and the Bible says, "Who are you, old man, to reply against God?" Shall the in Romans nine, who shall the thing that was created say to the Creator, "Why have you made me this way?" Yeah, and uh, John ten is probably the easiest, straightforward explanation of of um, how the covenant of redemption thing relates to Leonard atonement. Because uh, if you guys remember, uh, in verse seven. Therefore, Jesus said again, very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and out and go and find pasture. The thief only comes to kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life, have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees a wolf, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf tacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. So here, so far we have Jesus is the good shepherd. He lays down his life for the sheep, right? I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. It's personal relationship there between Christ and the sheep. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay my down for the sheep. So just, so the relationship that Christ has with the father, the union that, that, that Jesus has with the father is the same union that he has with the sheep. And he lays down his life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice. And there will be one flock and one shepherd. That's the inclusion of the Gentiles. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. This command I have received from my father. So So the command to lay down his life for the sheep is from his father. The Jews who heard this were divided against him. Many of them said, he's a demon-possessed and raving mad. Why should I listen to him? But others said, these are not the sayings of a man possessed by demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple courts, walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were there gathered around him, saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. As if saying that he came from the Father to die for the, the sins of people was not just straightforward enough. The miracles weren't, but he continues in verse 25. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. So remember, the reason that they don't believe is that they are not his sheep. Implicitly, what does that make him? Make them. If they're not his sheep, that makes them not people that they were, that he died for because he lays down his life for the sheep. So there, there you have limited atonement spelled out. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. Non-Christians don't do that. I give them eternal life 
and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So the unity of Christ and the Father, the work of Christ on the cross, and and the and the Father's work as well are are united. So whatever the Father's will was, Christ did and succeeded. Next, irresistible grace. This one is difficult for some people to understand too. I had a friend who said, "Oh yeah, I get the whole limited atonement thing, but this irresistible grace doesn't make sense," which I thought was strange because I was kind of the other way around. I got the irresistible grace, but didn't get limited atonement at first. Because you read places in Scripture where you know people say you're always resisting the Holy Spirit, and they say, "Well, see, grace isn't irresistible because people are always resisting the Holy Spirit." But what they're resisting is not the same type of grace that we're talking about when we're talking about irresistible grace. There's there's common grace, which would refer to the the grace that God gives to all human beings, but that's separate from special grace or saving grace which when God chooses to take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, you can't say, no, I don't want you to do that because a dead human being cannot resist the person who's bringing him back to life and say, no, I did not want you to bring me back to life. It's too late. You're already alive. I'm sorry. It's irresistible. I think, I think the thing that bothers me the most about this from the opposition is when they take it to the extreme and saying that, you know, that just it's just disgusting when they talk about God's forcing himself upon people and, you know, there's even there's some folks that, you know, will compare it to almost like rape where, where, you know, God's forcing us to do something we don't want to do. And it's just that right there is just that's where you walk away because they just completely do not understand where we're coming from at all. Yeah, yeah. When somebody says that, the first thing I say to them is if you're wrong, you just blasphemed God in the worst way possible. You just called God a rapist. Think about that for a minute and have a second thought about repeating such a blasphemous thing. But but then explaining it to them, it's you can break it down in this way, like, okay, God doesn't force himself upon people in a way that they don't want. He chains, changes their desire so that they want him. And it's the changing of the desire that's irresistible because you're, you can't resist somebody who's changing your heart. Does that make sense? You, you can't say, no, God, don't change my heart, right? Because he changes your heart so that you will say, Thank you, God, for changing my heart. You know, He takes out the heart of stone, the dead heart, and gives us a heart of flesh that beats for Him. So now we we want God and we want the things of God. So it's the irresistible grace is regeneration. It's the changing of our desire, the bringing us back to spiritual life. And so what's irresistible about it is in con- in contrast to the um, to the remonstrants, they were saying um, that God gives grace to everybody equally. And so then the difference can't be the grace, it has to be the person. So that would be the prevenient grace, where it's like, you get just enough grace so that you have the opportunity to choose or reject God, but he's not going to force you to choose or reject him, that choice is up to you. And the problem with that is understanding that it's not a, it's not a, a, the, it's not the grace that's making the change after the choice, it's the grace that's making the change in us before the choice. It changes my desire so that I do make the choice for him. It changes my heart so that I have faith. Okay, let's keep on rolling, man. The, the final one, Perseverance of the Saints, um, also has another name. Some people say once saved, always saved, but I actually don't it's like that phraseology. Yeah. 
Yeah, because what it what where it gets confused is that people think like you know like well I I prayed a prayer I walked down this the aisle to did the altar call and I prayed a prayer when I was little so I'm saved and I don't have to worry about it and that's not what we're saying because you know an external profession of faith is not necessarily a true manifestation of faith in somebody's life so um, the correct way to say it is perseverance of the saints because it's that if you are saved. If God takes out your heart of stone and gives you a heart of flesh, you can never like you know sin so bad that your heart reverts back to a heart of flesh. If somebody is living, if somebody is living a life that's horrifically wicked, and you know continue in this life of wickedness, we look at that person and we say they they weren't ever truly saved to begin with. You know, we we look at the person's life and we say they may have been a Christian on the outside, they may have come to church. They may have even made a profession of faith. They may have even taught, you know, they may have been a pastor, right? But the way that they're living their life now is evidence to us, like we were relating this back to justification by faith. When James says that justification is not by faith alone, but by works, this is what he's talking about. He's saying that, the, you know, the fruit produced by faith is a holy life, not a perfect life, but, you know, living for the Lord. And so the perseverance means that the Christians who are truly saved, who've been regenerated by Christ and truly had true faith, true saving faith, produces in them good works. Therefore, we can actually, we look to somebody's works for evidence of their true saving faith. So then when somebody manifests unbelief by the way that they're living their lives, we say not, we say not that that person um, has, you know, lost their salvation, right? We don't say that they've lost their salvation. Well, we say eternal security may have been the thing you were thinking of. Eternal security, yeah. So we, we don't say that you've lost your salvation because those who are truly saved will persevere. It's God, it's God that saves us and he, he works sanctification and then he causes us to continue in the faith. And that's the level that we deal with too. Like, in, you know, as pastors deal with this in ministry, they don't like look at somebody's heart and know if they're a Christian. They look at their life and say, you're not acting like one. You need to, you know, turn away from your sin. And if you don't turn away from your sin, I have to treat you like you're not a Christian because that's what the Bible tells me to do. Yeah, that's a part where I, I have uh, some difficulty um, trying to figure out, not trying to like judge people's hearts, but just um, when you see things that don't line up, like how, how far do you go? You know, like how, like when do you decide, when you decide, man, this person's uh, in, in danger or this person is just has a, you know, is, is continuing to be sanctified at this particular moment. Or even if, if it's someone's actions versus even just someone's convictions and beliefs, you know, how much can someone believe the wrong thing and still be saved? You know, can a Christian be pro-choice? Yeah, I think for some of those issues... um, there may be Christians who believe very, very, very wrong heretical things, like true Christians, but not because they're convicted of them, but because they don't understand. So it's more of a more of an ignorance yep. thing. But if somebody says something crazy and heretical and you correct them with scripture and they take a stand on their heretical issue, that that's that's a point in time when you say, like, look, like if you believe that you you're not a Christian. Because this is what the Bible says. And you know that's a dividing line. That's a gospel issue. Oh, I just stole. I just stole James White's thing. I'm sorry, Doctor White. I 
Stole your dividing line mm-hmm. thing. <laughs> Copyright. TM Alpha and Omega Ministries, Dr. James R. White. He's got a lot of plugs in this episode. Well, doc, I mean, Dr. White's, uh, that's one of his That's one of his things, and that's one of the things that he debates, so we've all learned a lot from him. He's a, he's a great resource to go to on these issues. Perseverance of the Saints is a tricky thing because we believe that, you know, it's God who keeps us, right? It's God who saves us and God who keeps us. Like the passage we just read from John 10, nobody will snatch them out of my hand. Nobody will snatch them out of the Father's hand. So it's Christ and the Father who together keep us. In a sense, it's not even, we, we don't begin our salvation. We don't maintain our salvation. We have nothing to do with it at all. But at the same time, there is that, you know, that practical level of, you know, like you can't, you know, you can't say, for example, that Jesus is not God and call yourself a Christian. That's like, you can't do that. That's just, that's heresy. And we have to, you know, we have to confront those things. But when it comes to like behavior issues too, I think that there's, um, I think that there's room for, in a sense, breathing fire and saying like, look, like the way that you're behaving right now is not the way that Christians behave. Not calling into question your salvation because I don't know your heart. All I know is I'm looking at the way that you're living your life, and you don't look like a Christian to me. So if you don't look like a Christian to me, what do you look like to unbelievers? And and you know, there's there's a time when we need to step forward and say like, you seriously need to take a look at your life. But I think that when it comes to actually questioning somebody's salvation from a ministerial standpoint, there's got to be a lot more investigation. Like sit down with somebody and talk to them and know them personally enough to know what they um what they believe on the issue and stuff like that and obviously that's why there should be you know seeking out the uh, authority of elders in the church um if it comes to a really serious issue like that so like if so, like I would say that if somebody in my congregation were pro choice I I would talk to the pastors about that if they refuse to budge on the issue because I don't think that it's possible for a Christian to be pro murder um, I, th- I think that if you, right. I think if you support the idea that people can willfully murder others, I think that that just shows, uh, some sort of deep hidden hatred in your heart that, I, that bothers me enough to where I would want to talk to a pastor about it. If you decided that that was a stand that you were going to take publicly. So, yeah, I think that's, that's gotta be something where it's just a misunderstanding of what, you know, what, what life is and when it begins and all that stuff. Well, this has been a thrilling discussion. We got we got through a lot of stuff. Anybody want to plug some resources real quick? Well, maybe we'll uh, put some in the description. We'll put some links to a couple, maybe maybe one of James White's debates. And go to aomin.org is his website. Uh, subscribe to the Dividing Line podcast. Um, Dr. White has tons of other stuff in apologetics other than just um, reform theology stuff, but he's got really good stuff. Basically, if you, I mean, you're traditional, if you think of, you know, Calvinist pastors, those are the sorts of people that you're going to want to go to, even though I, we disagree with John MacArthur and John Piper on some things, they're really solid on the issues of Calvinism, particularly. So R.C. Sproul, R.C. Sproul Jr., Douglas Wilson. Well, find us on Facebook, Dat Postmill. Follow us on Twitter at Dat Postmill. Go to our website, datpostmill.com, and keep hashtagging datpostmill. We'll see you guys next week. I like that. Hey, Knox, I ain't know what you was doing, man, when you was doing all this, but <laughs> another one. Let's go. Walk, talk, eat, drink, sleep, dream. Gospel. Wake, pray, read, dress, work, think. Gospel. Press, fellowship, yes, church, hear, see. Gospel. Everything. Gospel. Everywhere. Everywhere.